Welcome to the Ferguson Library Podcast. In this episode, we bring you Valerie Smith, president of Swarthmore College, giving a keynote lecture on Toni Morrison's Beloved, the subject of the library's 2021 Big Read event. NEA Big Read is a program of the National Endowment for the Arts in partnership with Arts Midwest, generously supported by the Friends of the Ferguson Library and co-sponsored by Stanford Stands Against Racism and UConn Stanford. This talk took place on October 7th, 2021 and was live-streamed over Zoom. Valerie Smith was introduced by Ferguson Library Associate Director Elizabeth Joseph. Joining us this evening to talk about Beloved, Toni Morrison, and all of her literary gifts is Dr. Valerie Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is a distinguished scholar of American, African-American literature and currently the 15th president of Swarthmore College, where her priorities have included attracting more low-income and first-generation students, supporting curricular innovation, increasing the diversity of the student body, and strengthening the relationships between the college and the region. She was a professor of English and African-American studies at UCLA, and the Woodrow Wilson Professor of Literature, founding director of the Center for African-American Studies and the Dean of the College at Princeton University. She is the author of numerous articles and three books. Um, in particular is uh, Toni Morrison, Writing the Moral Imagination. And now without any further delay and with great honor, we welcome to the podium, Dr. Valerie Smith. Morrison ranks among the most versatile, highly regarded, widely read fiction writers and cultural critics in the history of American letters. She was a novelist, editor, playwright, essayist, librettist, and children's book author. And as I mentioned earlier, she won innumerable prizes and awards, and her work enjoys extraordinarily high regard both in the United States and internationally. Her work has been translated into many languages, including German, Spanish, French, Italian, Norwegian, Finnish, Japanese, and Chinese. Now, because of her broad appeal, readers and critics have often sought to praise her work by calling it universal. The adjective universal has typically been used to describe work that the critic, viewer, reader believes that believes will speak to readers, viewers, or audience members, whatever their race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, socioeconomic status, background. Art described as universal is often contrasted with work that is labeled provincial, that is more explicitly grounded in the culture, lore, or vernacular of, a, of an identifiable group. But for all of its universality, Morrison's writing is famously steeped in the nuances of African-American language, music, everyday life, and cultural history. Most of her novels are concerned with the impact of racial patriarchy upon the lives of Black people during specific periods in American history, such as the colonial period, or the eras of slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, civil rights. I have been drawn to her work by the way in which, again and again, she helps us understand the impact of social, historical, and cultural practices and processes on individual, personal Black lives and on intimate relationships. So her work 
manages with extraordinary deafness to make us aware of the sort of broad sweep of historical processes, but then how they, but how those processes affect, shape, traumatize in many instances, the lives of individual people, uh, individual people who would often go unremarked and on the relationships they have with each other. So it should not surprise us that Morrison considered this term universal as a descriptor of her work to be a, a dubious distinction. In a 1981 interview, she observed, and I quote, it is that business of being universal, a word hopelessly stripped of meaning for me. Faulkner wrote what I suppose <clears throat> could be called regional literature and had it published all over the world. It is good and universal because it is specifically about a particular world. If I tried to write a universal novel, it would be water. Here Morrison famously challenges the notion that in order to um, have universal appeal, art must lack markers of cultural specificity. Instead, she argues that only by being specific can a work be truly universal. Rather than aspiring to a culturally deracinated style of writing then, in her fiction, she found ways of writing about race without reproducing the language of racism, or as she puts it in a 1997 essay called Home, how to be both free and situated, how to convert a racist house into a race-specific yet non-racist home, how to be both free and situated, how to convert a racist house into a race-specific yet non-racist home. Many critics have observed that one way to understand Morrison's career is to consider the interconnections, excuse me, among her roles as writer of fiction and nonfiction, editor and teacher. On numerous occasions, she has herself eschewed the distinction between scholarship and criticism on the one hand and the creative arts on the other. In a 2005 essay, she wrote, and I quote, it is short-sighted to relegate the practice of creative arts in the academy to the status of servant to its scholarship, to leave the practice of creative arts along the edge of the humanities as though it were an afterthought, an aspirin to ease serious pain, or a Punch and Judy show offering comic relief in the midst of tragedy. Thus, all of her novels wed the brilliant yet subtle use of aesthetic techniques with astute analyses of cultural and historical processes. Likewise, her essays combine keen critical insight with the compelling use of narrative and imagery. So we never forget that she is a novelist writing analytic critical prose or a social and cultural critic writing fiction. During her lifetime, as I mentioned, Morrison was a teacher, editor, critic, and fiction writer, often writing, often working in two or more of these areas simultaneously. She taught at a number of colleges and universities while writing fiction, and she published five novels during the period when she both worked as a senior editor at Random House and taught. 
As she continued to produce novels, she also wrote influential speeches, essays, literary criticism, libretti, children's books, and more. The project of her work outside the realm of fiction writing is tied inextricably to the aims of her fiction itself. To understand the extent of her contributions and achievements, I think it's worthwhile to spend a few moments considering the, the nature of these connections. Throughout her critical writing, Morrison asserts that the role of the reader must be active, not passive. She suggests that the reader must be actively engaged with the author in a dynamic process out of which textual meaning derives. In the 1996 speech called The Dancing Mind, this is a speech that she delivered upon the occasion of her receiving the Distinguished Contribution to American Literature Award from the National Book Award Foundation. Morrison writes, and I quote, underneath the cut of bright and dazzling cloth, pulsing beneath the jewelry, the life of the book world is quite serious. Its real life is about creating and producing and distributing knowledge, about making it possible for the entitled as well as the dispossessed to experience one's own mind dancing with another's about making sure that the environment in which the work is done is welcoming, supportive. Now, in part, the relationship between reader and writer reflects the influence of other forms of cultural production and performance, such as dance, oratory, and jazz upon her work. As she observed in a 1984 essay called Rootedness, The Ancestor's Foundation, in her writing, she seeks to inspire us to respond to a written text as if we were in a worship service or in a musical performance. She says, literature should try deliberately to make you stand up and make you feel something profoundly in the same way that a black preacher requires his congregation to speak, to join him in the sermon, in the sermon that is being delivered in the same way that a musician's music um, is enhanced when there is a response from the audience. Now, in a book which closes after all, it's of some importance to me to try to make that connection, to try to make that happen also. And having at my disposal only the letters of the alphabet and some punctuation, I have to provide the places and spaces so that the reader can participate because it is the affective and participatory relationship between the artist or the speaker and the audience that is of primary importance, as it is in these other art forms I have described. This quality of engagement is also important to her work because it is one, me one way by which she dismantles the hierarchies that support systemic forms of oppression. For Morrison, language is not peripheral to systems of domination. Rather, language is a central means by which racism, sexism, classism, and other forms of oppression are maintained, reproduced, and transmitted. As a writer, she was not in a position to make direct interventions in the social or public policy arenas, but she sought to use her artistic talents to illuminate and transform the ways in which certain practices enshrine culture structures of inequality. As she put it, eliminating the potency of racist constructs in language 
is the work I can do. So for this reason, Morrison does not spoon feed meaning to her readers. We have to be willing to reread, to work, as she once observed about her novels, but she uh, excluded Sula from this generalization. She said um, her work refuses the presentation, refuses the seductive safe harbor, the line of demarcation between the sacred and the obscene, public and private, them and us, refuses in effect to cater to the diminished expectations of the reader or his or her alarm heightened by the emotional luggage one carries into the black topic text. She also wrote elsewhere, I want my fiction to urge the reader into active participation in the non-narrative, non-literary experience of the text which makes it difficult for the reader to confine himself to a cool and distant acceptance of data. I want to subvert the reader's traditional comfort so that they may experience an unorthodox one, that of being in the company of their own solitary imagination. So sort of think about that for a moment. Uh, the traditional comfort of our own minds, as opposed to uh, being in the, in the uncomfortable company of our own solitary imagination. It's an interesting juxtaposition. So the opening of Beloved, I think, is a case in point. Um, I don't know about your experiences, but I recall my own first attempts at reading the novel. I remember I was, the first time I picked it up, I was on a plane. And I thought, OK, great, I'm on a plane, and I could just start, start reading this. And I started reading, and I thought, what? And so I found something else to read, OK? And then um, I picked it up probably three or four other times, and I just could not get with it, you know? Um, it took a while until I was in the right emotional and intellectual position to open myself up to enter the world of the novel. And then I was in, and I couldn't let it go. And I've noticed this with other Morrison novels. Uh, you, you have got to be patient, right? I, I don't know if others of you have had this experience, especially in the beginning. Um, you, just, you have to be in a place to go with her, right? And that's it's an interesting kind of experience of, of a kind of surrender. So here's how Beloved begins. One, two, four was spiteful, full of a baby's venom. The women in the house knew it, and so did the children. For years, each put up with the spite in his own way. But by 1873, Setha and her daughter Denver were its only victims. The grandmother, Baby Suggs, was dead, and the sons, Howard and Bugler, had run away by the time they were 13 years old. As soon as merely looking in a mirror shattered it, that was the signal for Bugler, as soon as two tiny handprints appeared in the cake, that was it for Howard. Neither boy waited to see more. Another kettle full of chickpeas smoking in a heap on the floor, 
Soda crackers crumbled and strewn in a line next to the door sill. Nor did they wait for one of the relief periods, the weeks, months even, when nothing was disturbed. No. Each one fled at once. The moment the house committed what was for him, the one insult not to be born or witnessed a second time. Within two months, in the dead of winter, leaving their grandmother, baby Suggs, Setha, their mother, and their little sister, Denver, all by themselves in the gray and white house on Bluestone Road. It didn't have a number then, because Cincinnati didn't stretch that far. In fact, Ohio had been calling itself a state only 70 years when first one brother and then the next stuffed quilt packing into his hat, snatched up his shoes, and crept away from the lively spite the house felt for them. Okay, so you can kind of see why I would think, what? <laughs> and, um, but, uh, and even now when I read it, I, you know, I, I chuckle to myself because I can see all of the way, all of the places of, of um, mystery, I guess, in that paragraph. And the fact that you, that she's inviting us into a process of understanding that only unfolds over time. So one, two, four, the first characters in that paragraph refers, of course, to one, two, four, Bluestone Road, the house that Setha, a former slave, shares with her daughter, Denver, and the ghost of her other daughter, the, quote, crawling already child she killed. Another thing, um, this principal character's name is Setha. But when you are first reading it, you don't know, you could, I don't even know how to pronounce the name. So I'm thinking, what is this, you know, what is this word? What is it? Seethe? Is it, you know, like what, or what? Okay. Um, number one, two, four had also been home also to baby Suggs, the mother of Setha's husband, Hallie, lost and presumed dead, and to Howard and Bugler, Setha's two sons. But baby Suggs has died and fed up with the baby ghost. The two boys have run away as well. By beginning this novel with a sequence of numbers, I think Morrison recognizes that she risks discomforting readers who will not know what these numbers are meant to, to refer to. But she has written that she opens in this way for a variety of reasons that are crucial to the meaning of the text as a whole. First, this opening focuses our attention on the house, and it gives the house an identity and a set of characteristics. Beginning spiteful for example, beginning with this powerful image underscores the significance, the meaning of home ownership to those who were themselves once property and who had been denied the right to own property in their former lives. Second, she writes that there is something about numerals that makes them spoken, heard. So opening with numbers establishes the significant role of orality within this work. But perhaps most significantly, this abrupt opening requires us to understand immediately that we are entering a world populated by people who exist in an extended, if not permanent, set, uh, state of disorientation. As Morrison observes, no native informant here. The reader is snatched, yanked, 
thrown into an environment completely foreign. And I want it as the first stroke of the shared experience that might be possible between the reader and the novel's population. Snatched, just as the slaves were snatched, from one place to another, from any place to another, without preparation and without defense. No lobby, no door, no entrance. A gangplank, perhaps, but a very short one. Published in 1987, Beloved is widely considered to be Morrison's greatest literary achievement, one of the most highly acclaimed novels of the 20th century, and a towering contribution to the world of American letters. Winner of the 1988 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, in 2006 it was selected as the best work of American fiction published in the previous 25 years. Focused as it is on the traumatic effects of enslavement, memory and forgetting upon the individual, familial, and collective consciousness of African Americans, it is a novel that expands our understanding of the human consequences of the institution of slavery. But as a novel about enslavement set during the period of Reconstruction, it is not merely a novel about the past, it is also about the persistence of the past into the present. Now, Beloved has been interpreted from a range of cultural perspectives, including feminist, psychoanalytic, neo-Marxist, critical race theory, and on and on. It has been read as a novel about slavery and freedom, a novel about motherhood, about the body, about the word, about history, about memory. The widespread esteem in which this book is held confirms Morrison's assertion that culturally specific narratives can convey universal truths. The novel addresses the impact of the Middle Passage, enslavement, and reconstruction upon black bodies and psychological, emotional, and spiritual lives. Yet it also illuminates the central role of the repressed memory of racial violence and its consequences within the broader story of American democracy. With its focus on loss, memory, grief, and healing, the novel tells a story that has resonated with readers across the globe. Uh, the story of Beloved grew out of a newspaper account Morrison discovered when she was editing the Black Book during her time as senior editor at Random House. As the late esteemed critic Cheryl Wall of Rutgers University wrote, the Black Book, a documentary history of, Ameri of African Americans, has several methodological and theoretical features in common with Beloved. She goes on to say, the Black Book represents a model for reconstructing the past that is topological, interactive, and communal. A fictional reimagining rather than a historical reconstruction, Beloved shares these same qualities. Both challenge conventional historical discourse. Both determined to excavate the lives of the anonymous Black folk who have been, quote, disremembered and unaccounted for. Both reflect what Morrison views as the necessity for Black people to find some way to hold on to the useful past without blocking off the possibilities of the future. Previously published in the American Baptist in 1856, the article, A Visit to the slave mother who killed her child tells the story of Margaret Garner, a fugitive enslaved woman from Kentucky who killed her two-year-old daughter and attempted to kill her three other children to prevent them from being captured and returned to, to slavery. 
Margaret Garner, her husband Robert, his parents and their four children ranging in age from nine months to six years, crossed the Ohio River from Kentucky into Cincinnati. But in Cincinnati, a search party captured them. Margaret Garner was caught between the interests of a slave state and a free state. For not only was she subject to prosecution under the terms of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, but she also faced murder charges in the state of Ohio. But ultimately, the federal judge who tried her case overruled Ohio's right to prosecute her for murder and upheld the Fugitive Slave Law instead. The family was returned to Kentucky, where their enslavers sold them to a plantation in Mississippi, and Margaret Garner died of typhoid fever in 1858. With its focus on a mother who chooses to kill her child rather than subject her to a life in enslavement, and who subsequently is treated as property within the legal system, the story of Margaret Garner is a deeply personal account that encapsulates the, the atrocities and political and epistemological paradoxes that underpinned and sustained the system of slavery. So it's not surprising that her story has both lent itself to a wide range of critical approaches and has been translated into a variety of genres. has said that once she learned the details of Garner's story, she decided not to conduct further research about her. So in other words, once she read this article and learned the sort of basic outline, she decided not to conduct further research about her. As a novelist, she pre preferred to draw on the resources of her imagination to conjure up the implications, motives, impacts, and reverberations of the episode. She said, I did a lot of research about everything else in the book, about Cincinnati, about abolitionists and the Underground Railroad, but I refused to find out anything else about Margaret Garner. I really wanted to invent her life. I had a few important things, the sex of the children, how many there were, the fact that she succeeded in cutting the throat of one and that she was about to bash another one's head up against the wall when someone stopped her. But the rest, she said, was novel writing. Like numerous other African-American writers in the second half of the 20th century and in now in the uh, early decades of the 21st, here Morrison draws on the freedom denied antebellum writers of slave narratives. She draws on the freedom denied by denied these antecedents to mine the complexity of the experience of enslavement. While the formerly enslaved were constrained by genre conventions when they wrote their own stories, they were constrained by the need to legitimate their humanity and their moral rectitude. Subsequent generations of African-American writers have been free to use their imagination to explore the unacknowledged and elusive effects of this institution upon the enslaved, the enslavers, and their descendants. Moreover, contemporary authors write from a perspective informed and enriched by the study of slave narratives, by the changing historiography of slavery, the complicated history of race and power relations in the US and throughout the world during the, 21st, during the 20th century, and the rise of psychoanalysis and other theoretical frameworks. 
As Morrison has reflected, it's a kind of literary archaeology on the basis of some information and a little bit of guesswork. You journey to a site to see what remains were left behind and to reconstruct the world that those remains imply. The narrative present of Beloved takes place in Cincinnati in 1873, eight years after the end of the Civil War. Set during Reconstruction, much of the novel looks back upon the period of enslavement. Indeed, by setting the novel during Reconstruction, Morrison invokes the inescapability of slavery for by the very name of the period, for, for the very name of the period, calls to mind the havoc, destruction wrought during both the antebellum period and the Civil War years. The characters have been so profoundly affected by the experience of enslavement that time and space cannot separate them from its horrors or undo its effects. She coins the term rememory, a word that blends remember and memory and is thus both verb and noun, to capture the persistent presence of the past, a past so vividly alive that it seems to be embodied. As Setha, <clears throat> the protagonist, observes, and I quote, someday you be walking down the road and you hear something or see something going on, so clear, and you think it's you thinking it up, a thought picture, but no, it's when you bump into a rememory that belongs to somebody else. Where I was before I came here, that place is real. It's never going away. Even if the whole farm, every tree and grass blade of it dies. Now readers with even a basic knowledge of the institution of slavery in the US are aware of certain fundamental facts. Enslaved persons were counted as their master's property, their master's property rights trumped any claims enslaved persons may have had over their offspring or other family members. They were not citizens, and for the purposes of representation were considered three-fifths human. They possessed no rights that white citizens were bound to respect, and thus could not own property, marry, or bear arms. They were forbidden to learn to read and write, and since they had no access to the rule of law, they could be whipped, raped, and otherwise abused with impunity. Now, some of us may assume that such a litany of atrocities captures the horrors of the institutions of slavery, of the institution of slavery, but Morrison disabuses us of that notion. And indeed, here is where the power of art makes itself felt. Rather than merely rehearsing the facts, she guides her readers into her characters' inner lives in order to enhance our understanding of the experience of enslavement and its traumatic after effects. The language of the novel both mines the depths of her character's grief and losses and confronts the limits of language to express traumatic suffering. So she's using language to both mine the depths of their suffering and confronting the limits of language to express trauma. As she remarks in an interview, I wanted it to be truly felt. I wanted to translate the historical into the personal. I spent a long time trying to figure out what it was about slavery that made it so repugnant, so personal, so indifferent, so intimate, and yet so public. In an essay entitled Unspeakable Things Unspoken, Morrison addresses the paradox artists face when seeking to represent traumatic experience. She observes the following. It seemed important to me that the action in Beloved the fact of infanticide be immediately known 
but deferred, unseen. I wanted to give the reader all the information and the consequences surrounding the act while avoiding engorging myself or the reader with the violence itself. I thought that the act itself had to be not only buried, but also understated. Because if the language was going to compete with the violence itself, it would be obscene or pornographic. This observation from Morrison's critical writing about her own novel raises important questions about the ethics of explicit description and the appropriate way of articulating unspeakable suffering. It asks us to consider how an artist speaks for the suffering of those who left no records or at best insufficient ones. What discursive forms give voice to the body in pain? The figure of beloved herself most obviously calls into question the relationship between narrative and the body. As a ghost made flesh, she is the story of the past embodied. Setha, Denver, and Paul D. encounter not only the story of her sorrow and theirs, they engage with its incarnation. The very name beloved challenges a number of oppositions. Simultaneously, adjective and noun, the word troubles the distinction between the characteristics of the thing and the thing itself. To the extent that the title of the book is an unaccompanied modifier, it calls our attention to the absence of the thing or person being modified. Additionally, the word beloved names more than the baby girl returned. In a funeral service, the word addresses those who mourn the dead. So the word beloved both names that which is past and that which is present. She is who is absent and those who remain behind. Indeed, the word beloved even calls attention to the space between written and oral. Until readers know the context from which her name comes, we don't know how to pronounce that name either. Is it three syllables? Is it two? In the terms the novel offers, beloved might be seen as an example of what Setha calls rememory, something that is gone yet remains a physical presence. So I want to commend you for your selection of Toni Morrison's Beloved as this year's big read. At a time when our shared experience of democracy is threatened by partisan divisions, suspicion, and fear, Collective engagement with a work of literature or some other form of artistic expression can help to bridge our differences. A novel as complex, as big even, as beloved, rewards multiple rereadings and extensive discussion, and it hones our skills of close reading and critical analysis. By taking us so deeply into a world far removed from all of us, it encourages our capacity for empathy. I hope that through this process of shared reading and the series of conversations and presentations, you will gain keen insights into the novel and that your understanding of this book about the period of slavery and reconstruction will lead you to think more deeply about our own time. Thank you. If you'd like to see an extended version of this talk, complete with Q&A, please visit the Ferguson Library's YouTube page. Valerie Smith's book, 
Tony Morrison, Writing the Moral Imagination, can be found at the Ferguson Library and requested from your local independent bookstore. For more information about the library, you can always visit fergusonlibrary.org. Thanks for listening.